If you've got your Bible open there, you might like to just, uh, keep it open because I want you to see that uh, what we'll be looking at is what the Bible says and not just what I've made up. Uh, if you have the little handout with you, it might help you uh, to see where we're going uh, as we look at this over the next um, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, thereabouts. Um, how about we pray as we get into looking at God's Word together? Loving Father, we ask uh, that you'll give us insight by your Spirit. We pray that we'll understand and be encouraged by your Word this afternoon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know why Luke was written? Well, you can. You can know why it was written. How? Well, because he tells us. And in chapter 1, verse 4... Uh, we are told that this gospel, this biography of Jesus, has been written so that a most excellent fellow by the name of Theophilus might have certainty about the things that he's been taught. Luke is gathering together information about Jesus. Uh, he's putting it together in uh, a narrative that explains clearly who Jesus was, what he taught, what he did, what he was on about, what happened to him, so that people like Theophilus can have certainty about Jesus. And I think it's helpful to know why we are reading a particular book. I've got a number of books at home that it doesn't really matter who they were written for or why they were written. By and large, they're novels. I've got a whole bunch of other books that have been written for particular reasons for particular people to read at particular times. Uh, for example, I have a car manual. I have a motorcycle manual. Apparently, it's helpful to read those things. Uh, you can actually make sense of the controls of your kind of sound system and that reversing camera and a whole bunch of other things. If you read the manual, it's been written for a purpose. But you wouldn't try and get a recipe from a car manual. Um, if you want a recipe, then you go to a recipe book. Of course, these days we just kind of ask Siri and she gives us a recipe for a whole bunch of different recipes. Uh, well, what we're dealing with here is an orderly account that Luke has written so that Theophilus, uh, who's probably uh, a Roman public servant perhaps, he's called most excellent, which is a way of speaking about someone who had some kind of authority, uh, we don't know exactly who this man was, but the reason is so that he might be certain of the things that he's been taught. And if that's true for him, then I take it it's true for all who would read Luke's Gospel, that we might have certainty about the things to do with Jesus. And how does Luke go about that? Well, we talked about this a little bit on, um, on Christmas Eve, uh, but just to recap, through careful investigation, that's the first thing. He, he says there... In verse 3, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that he might write an orderly account. Um, what is the everything? Well, I take it it's the whole account of Jesus, which we'll see in just a few verses, begins before conception. Uh, the account of Jesus has a background. Uh, you quickly discover where Jesus comes from. You learn a bit about who he is and what he's come to do and then you see things happening through the account of Luke's Gospel. And these are things that Luke has carefully investigated. 
Now, there's one thing that I want to draw your attention to in this, that is Luke is writing within a generation of the events that he's writing about. Now, we don't know an exact date for Luke's Gospel. People speculate about that. Uh, but realistically, there will be people alive at the time that he's writing this who could verify facts, who could fill in information, who could tell Luke details. For example, if somebody today wanted to write an orderly account of the life of Elvis Presley. Um, Elvis Presley died in 1977. I never remember exactly when he died. I know the day he was born because it was the day after my mother was born in 1935. Um, it's 1977, 46 years ago. Now, I take it Luke's probably writing this account less time after the death and resurrection of Jesus than 46 years. But comparing with today and an account of Elvis, someone could go back to Gracelands. Someone could speak to his wife. Someone could speak to his daughter. People could talk to the music industry professionals. People like Baz Luhrmann and others who've produced movies and so on about him have clearly done their own research and then created a masterful kind of artwork about it. But the evidence is there to be investigated. Luke is a historian who carefully is checking his facts. Not only that, but he has reference to eyewitness testimony. People were alive who knew Jesus. Um, who were those people? We're not told. It could have included Jesus' mother, Mary. Uh, if you read the beginning of the book of Acts, there's 120 people who were there kind of after the resurrection of Jesus and one of them is Mary, Jesus' mother. Um, there are his brothers as well. There's a whole bunch of followers. There are people who spent time with him. In fact, it was so important to the early church to get the facts about Jesus correct that when Judas died, they wanted to substitute another one for Judas and so they drew lots between two people and Matthias was chosen to be the 12th apostle. And what was the criteria? That he'd been with Jesus since the beginning. He'd been an eyewitness. Luke is intent in giving us history, good history, careful history, well-researched history. But it's not just a set of facts and circumstances. Luke is writing not into an historical vacuum, but against a backdrop of God's revelation. Uh, if, if you're with us over the last 12 months, one of the things that we've done as a church is to spend one term looking at the whole of the Bible in 10 sessions. Uh, a very rapid kind of bird's eye view from Genesis through to Revelation. And we saw that there is an overarching story God is making promises and he's planning the events of history so that those promises come about. And one of the things that Luke is doing, if you look at verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us is to draw our eyes to the fulfilment of the promises of God. So a few things are going on. It's history. It's well-researched history. It can be checked against the facts. You can talk to eyewitnesses about this. And it comes into a context where we see that 
Jesus is actually fulfilling promise after promise after promise that go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And why is he doing that? Well, so that Theophilus can have certainty about the things he's been taught. Friends, I don't want this to be an academic exercise. I want this to be very personal. So I'm going to ask you a question. That is, how certain are you about these things of Jesus? And uh, if you've got your handouts open there, you'll notice I've put a little table. It goes from zero, totally unsure, up to ten, completely certain. You don't have to write anything down. You don't have to speak about it to anybody else. But be honest before God. Where would you place your mark on that table? Would you say that you're completely certain and give yourself a 10? Would you say that you're, you're really very unsure? Would you give yourself a zero? Would it be somewhere in between? Where would you put yourself? Just, just come up with a number. And, and for those of you who would call yourself Christian, you're, you're following Jesus, um, think about whether that number is higher or lesser than it might have been some time ago. Some of us have been Christians. I've been a Christian now probably for uh, 50 or so years. Yes, I know I only look 40, but hey, I was a Christian before I was born. No, I'm a little older than that. Um, and there have certainly been times through that journey when I've struggled with doubts, where I've had uncertainties, where I've been confused about things. Bob shared with us that uh, even reading right through the Bible unearthed some things that were a bit troubling, some things that were questionable that he wants to go back and find out more about. Do you find that now you're more certain or you're less certain? Have you been through periods where you have really grappled with stuff and come out the other side more certain about these things? Well, here's a proposal for you for 2024. If you haven't come up with your own year's resolution, let me give you one. Why not make this the year to know for sure everything you can about Jesus? To make this the year to get to know Jesus well, to get to know him personally, to get to know him intimately. And, and you know what? It's a two-way thing. Because he knows you better than you know yourself. And as you get to know him, so you will get to understand yourself. And you get to see how God has made you and what he's made you for and, and where your life can go. This would be a great day to resolve to become certain about the things that you've been taught. And Luke's gospel is a great way to proceed on that journey. It's not the only way, but it's a great way. Well, let's, uh, let's move a little bit then into the rest of uh, this section that was read for us. This is a very long chapter, by the way. And we're going to take a few weeks in this chapter. I think there's 80 verses. In fact, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament uh, in word count. And if you weren't with us a week ago, uh, I asked the question of the congregation, who wrote more of the New Testament than any other author? Uh, a number of people came up to me afterwards and said, surely it was the Apostle Paul. He wrote so many books, different letters. But if it's on word count, it's Luke. Luke and Acts together make up more of the New Testament than all of Paul's letters put together. Uh, and we're going to work our way slowly through them. So what do we see here? Well, I'm going to just 
highlight some things for you to observe before I draw some threads together. First of all, if he's writing an orderly account, if he's checked things out, if he's collating stuff, if he's interviewed people, if he's got first-hand eyewitness testimony, then you would expect there to be details. And one of the things about Luke's Gospel is that there are many key details. Just pick up the way verse 5 continues. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Herod was the only one of those rulers that was known as the king of Judea. That's a particular little detail there in the text for us. Um, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So just in one verse, we've got a historical marker. It takes place at the time of King Herod. We've got a geographical marker. Um, he is the king in Judea. Uh, and we've got some connections back to the Old Testament with the priestly division of Abijah and being a descendant of Aaron. And we're introduced to uh, this person, Elizabeth, and her husband, Zechariah. So we're talking about details. And, and you see that as you work through. You jump into... Uh, Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Um, or if you uh, look down a little bit further, you can read more information about them. And throughout Luke's Gospel, we will keep getting historical, geographical circumstances. There'll be places, there'll be events that are taking place. There'll be little details that you would only know if you'd been able to speak to an eyewitness. Now, this first account, um, this first thing that Luke draws our attention to, could be summarised as two impossible births. Two impossible births. Um, how are they impossible births? Well, the first characters... Whoops. Good pick-up. Yeah, let's give it a bit of a bend. Well done. Oh, you right now? You okay? People will come to church now because they'll, they'll see that this happened on the video and, and they won't know what happened and, and just how incredibly dramatic it was. Um, and so they'll want to come to church next week to find out. Um, do come, by the way, if you're watching this. So, two impossible births. The first, of course, uh, we're told that it, it's going to be to a childless couple. Now, of course, lots of childless couples, but this childless couple are both very old. Um, we're not told how old they are, but clearly post-childbearing age. Uh, and you see that in the response um, that Zechariah makes, because he questions. Um, he says, how can I be sure of this uh, to the angel? I I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Um, now, he he's not commended for that question. In fact, he, he gets shut up for this question. He's silenced because he just sees that it's an impossible thing. I mean, you're making a promise to me that I'm going to become a father. Well, you've seen my wife, haven't you? Um, she's post-menstrual, she's not going to be having children, this is not going to be possible. You, uh, you look on and uh, there's another impossible birth and this time it's not to an old couple, it's to a pretty young couple. 
they're not yet married. There's a man called Joseph. He's a descendant of David. And he's betrothed to be married to a virgin named Mary. Now, the, um, the word in Greek for virgin can actually mean a young woman or it can mean somebody who's not yet sexually experienced. Both things are true and were typically one and the same. Uh, in Mary's case, I think we are seeing both being true. She's a young woman and she's not yet married and sexually involved with Joseph. But she is told in verse 21, 31 that she will conceive and give birth to a son and he is to be called Jesus. And the, the account here, again, is questioned. Um, verse 34, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Um, clearly, I think that's uh, evidence for the fact that uh, Mary and Joseph have not yet slept together. This is not going to come about through a natural sexual relationship. Uh, the angel answers that this will be the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. Now, let me point out a couple of differences here. First of all, Zechariah's question, how can I be sure of this because I'm old and my wife is well along in years, that is seen by the angel to be evidence of his lack of belief in the promise that's been made. Mary's question isn't how can this be, it's how will this be? It's not disbelief, it's curiosity. How's it going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that this will be the work of God. Now, in both these examples, I think we've got clear evidence of God's sovereign rule through human um, events, even improbable events. And one of the lessons I think that's uh, throughout this story is that God works in all the details of life. And I'll, I'll come back to that because I think it's very important that we know that God is at work in all things to bring about his good purposes. But there's an unusual character in these two uh, introductory birth accounts. We don't quite get to the birth yet, but um, there's an interesting character, and this character is an angel. Um, the word angel in the Greek language literally means a messenger. And uh, it doesn't mean that uh, it has to be a kind of uh, heavenly creature. You, you can have a, a, a human being who's a messenger or an angel. Angel's really just taking the Greek word angelos and making it into an English word. But here, I think we have clear evidence that this angel, Gabriel, is uh, what we'd call an angelic being because he comes from the presence of God. He makes that clear. Here is one who stands with God, but he comes as a messenger, do you notice? The, the key thing that Gabriel does here is bring a message, and it's a message from God. He comes to explain the events that are going on and to tell them what they mean and, and how they're going to come about. And the angel here tells us two key things, firstly about John and then about Jesus. And the key thing about John 
is in these words, um, and I'll pick it up and read it to you. Um, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to call him John. Uh, He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. Now, they've been praying for a son. And we don't know whether they'd been praying up to this time. I imagine they probably stopped praying 20 or so years ago for a son. And God has waited till now to answer their prayer. And it's going to be a joy to them, a delight to them. But it's bigger than just them. Because many will rejoice because of his birth. Not just that that this couple had a son, but because of what this son will grow up to be and to do. If you read on, he will be, uh, he'll be never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What's it saying about John? Something that is groundbreaking. This is absolutely revolutionary. Um, If we're to get it, then we need to go back into the Old Testament. In fact, we don't need to go far back into the Old Testament. Literally, the very last sentences of the Old Testament. And so I've given you a reference there. Malachi, it's the last book in our English Old Testaments. Malachi, and I'm going to read a couple of verses. First of all, from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Listen to this. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So God's going to send a messenger who will prepare the way for God to come. And then listen to these words, the last uh, two verses of the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 of Malachi. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parent to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So the promise, the very final promise of the Old Testament is that God's going to send a messenger who will prepare the way for him to come. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And and so now the angel is saying, Zechariah, Elizabeth, not only is it absolutely remarkable that you're going to have a child, but you're going to have that child. You're going to have the one who will prepare the way for God. And of course, that then raises the, uh, the hairs on the back of the neck because you're thinking, wow, if this one's coming, then God's on his way. Who's coming after him? I mean, the Lord is arriving. Who's, what's going to happen next? And then, of course, we read of the next birth the one who comes after John who's indeed a relative of John because Mary and Elizabeth are relatives Um, and we can read what the angel says to Mary about this child and so from verse 31 you'll conceive and give birth to a son and you were to call him Jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
And verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And interesting, the last things that the angel says are verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. You see, this narrative account of the uh, announcements that Elizabeth and Mary are going to have young well, all babies are young, they're going to have boys, is actually fulfilment of the promises of God. The promises that God would send the messenger before he turned up on the scene. John the Baptist is that messenger. Jesus is God, the Son of God, who's come among us. Friends, Luke's account as it focuses in on the announcements to this uh, couple and to this couple, are tying together key details that help us to understand who Jesus is. But let me, um, let me try and weave together a few of these threads as we, um, as we finish this up. The first point I'd make is that this account shows that God is at work in the details of life. Um, you see it in some very interesting ways. Um, with Zechariah, first of all, being in a particular priestly division and drawing the lot to go into the holy place in the temple on a certain day. Now, most of the um, historians that I read about this said that there were 18,000 priests um, they were divided into 24 groups or divisions, each with 750. Many of these priests wouldn't get anywhere near the Holy of Holies. And for those who did draw the lot, that would be their chance of a lifetime. And you can imagine Zechariah thinking, wow, I get to go into the Holy of Holies with this incense. This is the big day. But he had no clue at all. The big deal wasn't going in there to wave incense around, the big deal was he was about to hear from Gabriel, the angel of the Lord. And that took place in a very public moment. You see, he went in whilst there were dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people outside in the temple praying. And they wondered why he took so long in there. And then they wondered why he came out and he was unable to talk. You see, all these little details are things that a historian would gather up and they show that God is at work in these things. God is just as much at work today. I want to tell you a story. This, this happened um, last Monday, the Monday before Christmas. Uh, I, I was getting some, some brakes and some wiring done on, on my car and I took it into Port Macquarie and uh, I, I got a lift in there. Um, I'd been told that it would be finished at 2 o'clock and uh, while I was travelling in there, I got a call from, from Katie, who's uh, our assistant pastor's wife. And uh, I, I said, look, I'll get back to you. I've just got to pick up the car. When I got to pick up the car, they said it'll be another couple of hours. Now, this was in Port Macquarie. And uh, so I thought, well, look, OK, I'll go for a walk and I'll take the call from Katie. Katie says, there's a number of us from church that are wanting to help out a... Um, a woman with five children who doesn't have very much. She's escaping a domestic violence situation. 
Um, could we afford to buy her a fridge so that there's somewhere she could put food? And I said, look, we probably could, but how about you hold off on buying the fridge at the moment? Because fridges are one of those things that sometimes people have got them in their garage and they're not being used and so on. And then I hung up. And um, she had a few things to do with this. And I was just going for a walk and I went to Settlement City, which was near where the car place was. And I went in and there were three people on a ginger beer stool. And, uh, and I knew one of them. And I went up and I was just having a bit of a chat and Grumpy's ginger beer, it's very nice. You should uh, help yourself to some of that. And um, I, it, I can only say God just prompted me to say, look, um, none of you would have a fridge, would you? Or a freezer? And there were three people there. She said, well, I've got a freezer. It's doing nothing. You can have it. And he said, and I've got a brand new fridge. And it's in a storage container in Warhope. No, I don't need it. You can have it. So I rang Katie back and I said, sorry, it's been 15 minutes, but um, I've got a fridge and a freezer for you. And then I went into Woolworths and to Big W and I did a bit of shopping and I came out. And both those people had disappeared. There was only the one guy there with the ginger beer. And when I thought about that, I thought, if the car had been on time, I never would have gone there. If I had gone and done the shopping first and gone in the other entrance and then come back out, I would have only seen that one person. And you can do the what-if game forever and ever, but God knew what was needed and he made that happen. And God does that all the time. It's just that doesn't always seem as remarkable as that. And it's not always as remarkable as this. This is the event. Some people think, well, you've got to apologise that there are angels there. You know, if this is history, then why are you talking about angels? I'm thinking if this is God entering into human history, I'd be very surprised if there weren't angels there. I mean, really? That happened without angels? How did that happen? You read about angels, well, they're not everywhere. They, they might be everywhere, but we're not told that they're everywhere. You, you read physically in the gospel about angels and you'll read about them two times. Here in this opening two chapters, at the end, as Jesus is praying in the garden and the angels come and help him. You see, God is at work and God knows what's needed. And God knows what we need to know. And the angel's role here is to tell Zechariah and Elizabeth, to tell Mary and Joseph, and therefore to tell us, as Luke writes this down, what these births are about. And these births are about God coming among us to save us. About Jesus sitting on the throne of David to rule over God's kingdom forever and ever. This is an incredible event that's taking place. Every promise that God has made is, is starting to be fulfilled with Jesus. And we get to read on. So friends, I, I want to say to you this New Year's Eve, you can trust God. And you should trust God. And if you don't know why, let me encourage you to read Luke's Gospel. Let's pray.